0: slightly more topical aspect of decision making at the moment with a COVID-19 pandemic which is hitting the world. Looking at ourselves in the UK and we almost feel like at the moment we're anticipating the surge and not quite in some places got there yet. There may potentially be a great demand on the resources that we have here and, and there is a very potential that we may not have enough resources and I think that's something that fears a lot of intensivists. Is there any ways of thinking about this process and, and how we might work towards making effective decisions in those sort of situations? I
1: think the first thing I would suggest is people think about, do they need support in making decisions or are we actually triaging patients? Because they're very different. Triage is around what happens when the resource is exhausted. Decision support is around how do we make the best use of the existing resource that we've got. And I think that's really important. Um, the NICE guidance is around focusing on decision support. So, saying where we have resource, how do we make the best use of it and what do we do around that? When it comes to triage, it's more complex. Decision support is around us, again, behaving in an appropriate ethical and legal framework. Triage does require a different framework, and it has got some risks around it. So again, it's not something that a clinician would want to be doing on an individual basis, or in a small hospital basis, or on a unit basis, without any central guidance and support from higher up. Because the concern around making those kind of rationing decisions is it introduces unconscious bias, inconsistency and value judgments, which mean it can be very difficult because, again, you cannot really have a situation where somebody is is having a level of treatment in in one area that is not consistent with a level of treatment in another area unless it has been agreed and, and supported that that is going to be the case. So the most important thing is to think about what you are doing at that particular time. Are you managing your resource or are you act, have you actually been told to triage patients under a particular set of criteria?
0: One of the things on the decision support side of things, when we're dealing with a new virus, like coronavirus, where we don't have a great deal of information about outcomes at the moment, and a lot of our decision support revolves around our ideas about what the likely chance of recovering from that illness is, and that that can be quite difficult. How do we manage that time where you have limited knowledge about a condition, but you're expected or relied on to make a a decision about Mm. whether that patient receives critical care?
1: I think one of the things for me is around, it's often presented as a a decision at a single point in time, It isn't. It's a pathway of care and multiple decisions along that pathway. So as we've said, the NICE guidance is focused on making sure that patients, before they are referred to critical care, are appropriately informed and assuming that that operates in the way that's anticipated. A number of patients will probably decide that critical care treatment isn't for them. When patients are coming to critical care, it's not just about admission to critical care. One of the things we know from GERF, the Getting It Right First Time programme, is that patients aren't being treated the same up and down the country. Now, GERF hasn't reported yet for critical care or for perioperative medicine, but it has reported for some of the major surgical specialties. And they've identified a two to threefold variation, not just in provision of critical care treatment, but again, around what goes on in critical care. So we have to think about when a person is admitted to critical care, what are we doing subsequently? Are we reviewing on a regular basis? Are we making decisions that are appropriate based on best clinical knowledge at that time? Because it can be very easy to just let things drift. Mm -hmm. And actually, we should be trying to actively manage the resource at the moment in the COVID situation and say, we will admit people that we believe are going to benefit from critical care and we will review that on a daily basis. And that knowledge that some people will deteriorate and within the best evidence base of knowledge we've got at the moment, then we will make a clinical decision that is appropriate on the best knowledge base at that time. Or we will say that person isn't deteriorating, probably is going to continue to benefit and we'll keep going with treatment. That's actually no different from the way we manage a lot of other conditions, really.
0: I was going to say exactly the same thing to you, really, and it it sounds like um, the decision support is essentially what we have been doing or should be doing. And actually triage is something quite different, which probably not many of us have ever had to experience before unless you've worked in other environments where that might have happened. So it sounds to me like what we need to do is to just focus on the skills we have and what and what we'd normally do in a situation of deciding whether a patient comes to intensive care or not uh, and not worry about the other bits of the moment.
1: I would say that's very much the case at the moment. And what we also know about critical care in general, which we've been quite poor at, is not considering the impact of unhelpful treatments um, on patients, on not just the patient, but the family around them and the staff that are looking after the patient. So again, there's research evidence, there's work we've done in the Specialised Clinical Frailty Network that people are morally harmed when they know that we are doing something that is beyond the point at which it's going to be beneficial for that person. So we do have to now start being brave and not have that mission creep of saying, well, we'll just keep going for a few more days. It's probably going to be hopeless, but we'll just keep going for a few more days. I mean, the classic example is you'll wean somebody who you actually know will not leave hospital, but you'll wean them so that they get discharged to the ward. Maybe now is the time to think about if you already know this person is not going to leave hospital, what are you doing?
0: It's very true. And one of the things I've been thinking about recently is about our lack of long term follow up data. And that's not just on a national level, but also on a local level and what's happening in your own unit and how long are your patients staying in hospital for? How long do they remain in the community after discharge before they have to come back in again? What's their quality of life when they get back to home? How much uh, sort of input they need in terms of support and a sort of lack of functionality when they get home? And I don't know whether you know of any units you have or collecting that data, because presumably that means we can then give our patients better information to make those decisions.
1: Absolutely. And when we were doing work with the Specialised Clinical Frailty Network last year, that was very much focused around quality improvement projects that were small on a PDSA cycle with the focus on what matters to me for the patient. So I can give you an example, and it's quite eye-opening, but it's information that i had never had before, which is when somebody comes to critical care, on average, in our unit, we make 10 medication changes that are quite significant to their medication. Now, what we thought happened was that we would impact on their high-risk medications, the medications that might increase the risk of delirium, for example. But we actually made overall, on average, 10 medication changes. And when that person left hospital, a significant number of those were still in place. The parent teams hardly made any changes when they were discharged to the ward. So they were being discharged with about seven or eight major changes to their medication that wasn't appearing on the discharge summary because the parent teams didn't know why those changes had been made. And then the patient would appear at the GPs with all those medication changes and the GP wouldn't know why. So there is an awful lot happening well below our radar at a very small level that could be looked at and reviewed under simple PDSA cycles to be able to say, we need to be collecting this information. So we can give this information to parent teams, patients, GPs, and get them to understand that they need to be primed to know about
0: this. Do you collect data on what happens to your patients after they leave the unit that you can then present to patients when they're thinking about whether they want to come to intensive care at all?
1: I think one of the things that we acknowledge in Sheffield is we've never really had a follow-up clinic. So in the way that some of the centres like Reading, for example, have had a follow-up clinic for years and have got good, robust data for their own patients, We haven't got that. We've got a lot of data around what goes on in critical care and our outreach nurses have been collecting follow-up data for us um, that's on a very short-term basis, so what happens when they go to the ward. But we haven't got a good data set for afterwards and, and, again, that's something that we will need to do going forward. But we've got a very robust data set for what happens on critical care, probably one of the more robust data sets in the country, I think.
0: One of the things I just wanted to talk about finally was sometimes we may shy away from these conversations with patients and part of that may be trying to protect ourselves. I certainly find that having these conversations can be some of the most stressful things as being an intensivist and also can weigh on you quite heavily emotionally afterwards. How do we approach that to make sure that we stay well as clinicians and that we're able to remain empathetic? and to have those conversations and again and again and again?
1: It would be really nice to just say, ha, here's the answer, but there isn't a single answer. It's really about culture and that's complex. So a number of things can be utilised and not one intervention on its own helps. So we have had um, the benefit of a psychologist on the unit who has supported some stuff when there have been some difficulties particularly around difficult patients that have caused a lot of distress for staff. And they can be helpful in terms of debriefing and helping the staff to get some of the issues off their chest. Other hospitals have adopted the short-round concept and are utilising that very effectively. I would say strongly that you actually need to have a group of individuals who are willing to support each other and are there for each other. And that isn't just around the tribes of medicine, nursing. That's actually about we are all a team and we are working And creating a team ethos can be really difficult. And it's also giving people the freedom and the space to acknowledge that actually something has been problematic for them as an individual to actually say, do you know what, I found that really hard. Um so I don't think there is any one single thing. I think it's really important to be in an environment where you're able to acknowledge it and you're working on a culture that says we will acknowledge this. We will do what we can. And as the medics or the clinicians, it's our responsibility to make sure that we are not making medical decisions and treatments that are not harmful to people that people around us can see are harmful. We have a responsibility to take some of those tough medical decisions that other people cannot take, but actually they need us to take to help them in terms of doing their job without a significant degree of moral distress.
0: And I think as well, it needs to be less of an individual feel to it and rather more of a team approach with, you know, a Mm -hmm. second opinion from a colleague. Because I think you can start to feel quite isolated and then start to worry about whether you are making the right decisions about things. And I know I certainly have had a number of phone calls from clinicians on the ward who just want to talk through their decision making process. And it's not because they want necessarily my opinion on it. They just need a second pair of ears to kind of talk through their thought processes. And that can be quite useful.
1: I, I think that's a really, really important comment for people because often what you might find is when you've got a clinician on the ward who is what you might perceive as being awkward, from their perspective, they have a relationship with that patient that they've had for a long time. They may be feeling very vulnerable because they may be carrying lots of guilt around decisions around treatment that they've made or not made. and feeling quite isolated that they haven't got colleagues who can necessarily help them and support them. And they are looking to us as the intensivists often to provide that support, but in a way that they can't often acknowledge that they need that support. So it's often presented to us as a very kind of heads on argument about why we're wrong and they're right.
0: Yeah, and it's just kind of trying to unpick that slowly, isn't it? And try and talk through it. But for me, the other thing to appreciate is really that these things take time and they should take time. And I think we can often get approached about things when we're stressed or we're busy with multiple things going on. And actually, sometimes these decisions don't need to be made right there and then. And it's about trying to move them to a point of time where you have more time, I guess, to kind of focus on it and actually give it the time that it deserves.
1: We find the consultant office and a cup of coffee. Yeah. can be very <laughs> helpful
0: <laughs> always learning. when you're
1: having a standoff at the bottom of the bed go and suggest a cup of coffee and a seat in the office